October 31st, 1517, was the time when uh, Luther took those 95 theses and nailed them to the, the door there in Wittenberg, and well, that scene you've been seeing as a, a part of this series here. Uh, but we, we'd be mistaken to think that, that it all kind of started there, that while that, that nailing of those theses to the door was kind of that, that catalyst that, that started what we now look back on and, and, and call the, the Reformation, where there was this, this correction, there was this challenge of the, uh, of the corrupt practices and the, the, the errors in, in teaching of the church of that day. But the seeds of it had been going on for a long, long time. That God had been working in Luther's life to bring him uh, to this point. Uh, one such episode was in 1510. 1510, Luther is a good Catholic monk doing everything to the best of his ability. He had an opportunity to go to Rome, and to make that pilgrimage to Rome was of high value because of the, the places you would see, the things that you could touch, the acts that you could perform. And one of the places that Luther went is where pilgrims actually still go today in Rome. It's a staircase that looks like that. It's called the Scala Sancta, or the Holy Stairs. And the story behind the holy stairs is is supposedly these are the stairs that Jesus ascended when he made his way before Pilate. Now, you would rightfully ask, how did they end up in Rome? Well, the story goes, and whether you give credence to it or not, the story is that you have to understand part of what was going on, there was this this emphasis on relics. And so there was all of these trips even to to Israel and other places to, to discover all of these relics that were thought to have some sort of holy power, if you will, or at least significance. And the story is uh, that one of the emperor's, uh, I think moms, actually had these stairs moved from Jerusalem to Rome. Uh, Whether that's true or not, we don't really know, but pilgrims have for centuries made their way to Rome to go up the holy stairs. And what you do as a good Catholic, you go up on your knees and you pray at every step. And if you were like Luther, you would also kiss every step. So in 1510, Luther makes his way to Rome. He's going up the holy stairs, stopping at every step and saying a prayer and kissing the step. And as Luther looked back on that, he got to that top step. And he looked back and seeing all of these people kind of crawling up the steps. And he said, who knows whether any of this is true. And he paused in that moment realizing that he felt no closer to God. The Holy Stairs represented an important milestone in the road to the Reformation because Luther's failure to find an assurance there, drove him to the Bible. 
And it drove him to a, a fresh understanding of the work of Jesus Christ. It drove him to an understanding that it wasn't about us ascending to God with any sort of our works, but it was what God had done for us in Jesus Christ in descending to us. And that's why one of the five Latin phrases that came to kind of crystallize the, the theological underpinnings of the Reformation is solus Christus, the Christ alone. And that sola Christus is really centered around one question. Is there anything, is there anything that needs to be added to the completed work of Christ for our salvation? Is there something, is there some works that I need to do? Is there some, some things that I need to engage in? Is there something that needs to be done that will add to the work of Jesus Christ? And Luther, going back to the New Testament, came to the, the, that conclusion, no. No, it is all about what Jesus Christ did for us. I can't add to that. Now, again, before you begin to think maybe this is just insider theological wrestling, it has real-world daily life ramifications. For all of us will wrestle with, did Jesus Christ do enough? And what Jesus Christ did, was it enough for me? Let me try to make this personal. See if you can identify with any of these questions. Do you ever find yourself discouraged or depressed by your failures? A failure to measure up. Do you frequently experience some level of anxiety that something's about to go wrong? Kind of karma thing, right? Do you sometimes suspicion that God can use others, but because of your past, because of what you've done, he may forgive you, but he can't really use you? Do you sometimes fear that your past will come back to haunt you? Is there something in your past that you just can't seem to get completely beyond? It just keeps hanging with you. When you experience difficult circumstances, do you tend to think that those are God's judgment for your sin. When you sin, do you get a vague sense that somehow there'll be a price for you to pay? Last question. How often do you think about the cross? See, an understanding of the work of Jesus Christ is central to experience the life, the freedom, the joy, the power that God wants us to live with. And I am convinced that there are many folks, there are many folks that kind of check theological boxes and they would be orthodox in a lot of their thinking. But at the practical level, they're still like, 
maybe there's something that I still got to do to be right with God. James Boyce, when he talks about this central question, puts it this way. The reformers taught that salvation is by and through the work of Jesus Christ only, which is what the slogan solus Christus refers to. It means that that through the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus has done it all so that now no merit on the part of man, no merit of the saints, no works of ours performed either here or in some belief in purgatory can add to his completed saving work. And that was a radical departure from the teachings of the church of his day. And so it is central for you and I to not just think about a historical debate, but to think about what, what is it that Jesus Christ did? What did Jesus Christ do on our behalf? How do I respond to that? How does that impact the way that I live my life every single day? So I want to just kind of lay a foundation here this morning about the finished work of Jesus Christ. Four key things to understand. The first is our problem. Our problem. And our problem is a lack of righteousness. Righteousness in the Bible basically means perfect obedience. That's the standard. That's the standard. If you want to get right with God by performance, then the standard is perfect. Perfect obedience. A righteous person is one who always, always does what is right. Now, there are few and far between people who would say, that's me, right? And lest any of you have some tendencies that way, ask your family, all right? Ask your family if you have walked in perfect obedience and righteousness, right? They will probably let you know there's a few holes in your theory, right? But that's what the Scripture says is true of every one of us. It's all of our stories. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That doesn't mean we don't do good things, but if the standard of good is perfection, then none of us is there. None of us can earn a right relationship with God because of our lack of righteousness. Galatians, and we'll come back to a lot of passages from Galatians because it was kind of combating, it was a letter Paul wrote that was combating this thought that somehow we can add works or works of righteousness to the work of Jesus Christ. To the Galatians, Paul wrote, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all, you might want to underline that, all things written in the book of the law and do them. It's the same thing that James would say later. It's it's all or nothing, right? I mean, it's all, you have to obey them all or it's as if you didn't obey any of them at all all. And so we don't have this right standing with God. This is our huge problem. There's no way we can perform ourselves out of that problem. You lay against that Christ's perfection. 
Christ perfection. That Christ did what we were called to do. Christ lived the life we were called to live. He died the death that we deserve to die. Peter, Peter who walked as intimately and closely with Christ as any other human being over the course of three years, wrote about him this way. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. I lived with this guy day and night for three years, and my testimony is he was without sin. Powerful. The author of Hebrews. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We can't say, well, uh, my situation is different. My circumstances are more difficult. There's more temptation. There are different temptations. No, no, no. Tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. John, another, John, close associate with Jesus, recorded the words of Jesus in his gospel. And he who sent me, Jesus said, is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always always do the things that are pleasing to him 100 percent of the time one more example philippians 2 paul writing to the philippians and being found in human form talking about jesus he humbled himself by becoming obedient and his obedience was even to the point of death even death on a cross he was so perfect in his obedience he was so perfect in his love his alignment with the father that even even facing the cross he continued to obey fully and completely jesus had the perfection jesus was the only one who met the standard our problem a lack of righteousness christ had a perfect righteousness now this is where those two come together. And I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And if you don't have this kind of highlighted in your Bible or memorized or uh, whatever is, is the best way for you to kind of keep it before you, this is a great verse, a great verse to keep front and center. Verse 21, for our sake... For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This has been called the great exchange because this is the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. That's the first part of this great exchange. Our sin gets transferred to Christ. My rebellion, my lack of righteousness, my lack of love toward the Father, all of those things, the, the just punishment for that, the justice that is required for that, all of that is transferred to Jesus Christ. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Again, in that letter to the Galatians, 
Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do that? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That, that, he, that he gave his life to take on that sin penalty. Galatians uh, uh, continues, or should say uh, Isaiah. Let me back up. Did I give you that one? Yeah, I gave you that one. Uh, Isaiah 53, 6. All we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah saw this coming through this prophetic eyes that all we like sheep have gone astray. Our problem, every one of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. Some of you uh, may have uh, shared this before. I know uh, it was uh, part of some training that uh, we have, have done through the years of, of just how to share uh, the gospel. And you can take Isaiah 53, 6, and it's just a powerful passage. And you can take like a, a book like this and think about this is me in a relationship to God, but I have this, this incredible weight of sin. All of this sin, all of this rebellion, all of this thing that demands God's holy justice. And what did God do? God sent Jesus Christ, perfect in righteousness. No sin, no rebellion. And what did he do? Isaiah says, the Lord has laid on him, laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of my sin, all of my rebellion... All that deserved God's justice was laid on him. It was transferred to Christ. That's the first part of this great exchange. My sin, your sin, my lack of righteousness is transferred to Christ. But that's not all. That it takes two parts for this great exchange to be effective in our lives. Not only is our sin transferred to Christ, but Christ's righteousness is credited to us. The righteousness, that perfect obedience, that perfect love, that perfect life of Jesus Christ, it gets credited to us so that not only is he made to be sin, so that in him, in him we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be made credited with his righteousness. And again, you see that repeated over and over again in the New Testament writings, Paul writing to the Romans. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So in Adam, we, we have sin entering into the world, in Christ, we have this perfect righteousness, this opportunity for us to be declared righteous. To the Colossians, Paul wrote, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order, why did he do that? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That it's not just my sins transferred, but his righteousness is credited to my account. One more example, Philippians 3. And to be found in him, 
This is Paul's desire to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, not something that that I can earn or deserve, not a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that this great exchange is offered, that he will take my sin and transfer it to Christ. And he will take the perfect righteousness of Christ, that perfect love, perfect obedience, and credit it to my account. And you see, both of those are necessary. Well, let me try to to give this to you in a a diagram fashion. Maybe this will help. You might want to just jot this down in in your margin somewhere. But this is sometimes as far as some of us go when it comes to thinking about salvation. That we come with all of these negatives— And we come with all of this sin, all of this rebellion, all of these things that demand God's righteous, perfect justice. And that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, my sin is transferred to him. And if you think about it, all the negatives go away. You know, what can wash my sin away? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so I kind of get to neutral, if you will. But neutral is not enough. Neutral is not enough. Remember the standard, perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. And so the great exchange is not just having my sin paid for by Christ to get back to neutral, but it is also the righteousness of Christ credited to my account. His life of perfect love and perfect obedience. So I don't just go from negative to neutral. I go from negative to neutral to positive. That the positive righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to my account. That's the completed, finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's here with me for a moment. When you begin to think about that, when you begin to think about the life that Christ lived, And that life of perfect love and obedience led him to the cross, not for anything that he did, but to pay for what I did and what you did, and that his perfect love and perfect righteousness is credited to my account. It is almost arrogant to think that I can add anything to that. It is the height of self-righteousness to think that I can add something to the finished work of Jesus Christ. How do I respond to the work of Christ? It's not by seeking to add something to it, but it's recognizing and relying upon it. Galatians, again, this passage, this letter that was just written to combat folks who were departing from the real gospel and seeking to kind of justify themselves by Christ plus works. Yet we know, Paul said, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be justified. Maybe you've been in some church circles and someone said, well, you can think about justified in this way. Justified is just as if I had never sinned. Have you, some of you heard that? Some of you heard that? That's okay. 
but it's not complete. It's also just as if I had perfectly obeyed. It's both ends of that great exchange. Not only did he take on the punishment of my sin, but his righteousness was credited to me. And the way that I connect to that, if you will, is what we've been talking about in this series, by his grace, through faith. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. They're all intimately connected. So what does this faith look like? Well, did a whole message on solo fide by faith alone. You may go back and check that out. But let me just kind of crystallize it here again in the context of what we're talking about this morning, the work of Christ alone. I want you to think of two words. The first word is renunciation. Authentic faith that responds appropriately to the finished work of Jesus Christ is a renouncing, a renouncing of any trust in our own performance as the basis of our acceptance before God. That I understand uh, there's nothing on my best day that could earn God's forgiveness, that could earn a right standing before God. And so I renounce any reliance upon my performance as the basis of being accepted before God. But not only a renunciation, but a reliance. Relying entirely on the perfect life and death of Christ as the sole basis for our acceptance before God. That not only do I renounce performance, I, I can't earn anything by my performance, but I am going to rely entirely on the perfect life and death of Christ as the soul. That's why it's sola, solus, sole basis of my acceptance before God. And this is not just a moment of salvation thing. But this is a every single day of my life thing. Every single day of my life thing. One of my favorite authors, because he, he, he can take complex and, and make it simple, and I need that, uh, is Jerry Bridges. And, and Jerry passed away just a couple of years ago. Well, one of my all-time favorite quotes from Jerry Bridges is this. Uh, let me okay, go ahead and jump to it. Our worst days... Our worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Right? Now, I want to pause here for a moment. That Galatians 2.20 passage just talks about the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. It's an every single day thing. Hear me. Because this this is going to tie into what we're going to talk about here in just a moment. About two subtle snares. But for some of us. For some of us. We can slip into that mentality of thinking. You know. It's been a pretty good day. (laughs) Had my quiet time this morning. Gave a full tithe. I'm not talking about the cheap 2% tithe. I mean, I, I did the whole thing, right? And, and I, I even served somebody sacrificially today. And, and, and I you know, kind of shared Christ with somebody. Wow, this has been a good day. On my best day, on my best day, I never, never, never get beyond my need 
of God's grace. But for some of you, you don't spend much time there. You tend to spend more time on the other end. You tend to struggle on the other end and say, you know, I blew it today again. (laughs) On my worst day, on my worst day, I'm never so bad that I'm beyond the reach of God's grace. To hold those two truths side by side is the key to living by faith in Christ Jesus who gave himself up for me. It is renouncing reliance on my performance and it's relying totally on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when I do that, when I do that, it opens up my life to some amazing benefits. And, and this is a whole sermon series. So I'm just going to flow uh, rapidly through them this morning. Six amazing benefits. The first is approval by God. Approval by God. When I, when I renounce and rely fully and completely on Jesus Christ, I am approved by God. I have his, his favor is resting upon me by his grace. And because of that grace, I have access to his holy presence presence, his fellowship. Why do I have any hope as a person whose life has been marred and marked by sin of coming into the presence of a holy God in prayer because of the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ? I have access to his holy presence. I have adoption into his family. I was once alienated. I was once an enemy. I was once separated. But he has adopted me into his forever family, his community of believers. I have admittance into heaven uh, to to know that, that not even death itself can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. To know that disease is not going to have the last word, that, that unforeseen traffic accident is not going to have the last word, but, but the word belongs to Jesus Christ. I have admittance into his presence, an eternal home prepared for me by his grace. I have the appropriation of our daily provisions, and earthly sustenance, Every breath that I draw, every beat of my heart, every time a neuron fires, it is all by his provision. It is all by his grace. Every single day I can appropriate his daily provisions. And that leads to the sixth one, an ability. An ability to live life God designed me for. His strength. All of those amazing benefits are mine, not because of my performance, but because of my reliance upon the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ. And as I say that, I want to kind of put these two warning lights up very quickly for us this morning. I want to warn you of two subtle snares, and we've already hinted at them, but you, you and I will, by nature, by upbringing, tend more toward one of these snares than the other. The first snare we'll call the snare of self-righteousness. The snare of self-righteousness. The snare of self-righteousness looks a little bit like this. It, it understands, well, I, you know, I, I I need God to do for me. Obviously, I, I, I was imperfect. I fell short. I, I needed God to do for me some things that I couldn't do for myself. Sometimes self-righteous people, though, think, you know, but I was about 80% there. Right? 
And, Christ, and I've even heard folks explain it this way. And then Christ kind of filled in the other 20%. No, 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 no. It was all of him. Sometimes self-righteousness looks like, well, I know I was saved by his grace. But my life kind of since then kind of deserves God's blessing, right? I deserve God's blessing. Or maybe you come to prayer and you're, 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 you're praying and you're calling out on this request and there's a part of you that says, God, you owe me. I mean, you ought to answer this prayer because of the, you know, the life I've been living, the things I've been doing. Or one time I had a kind of this lump thing that showed up, which is like not always always not a real good thing to have a lump show up in your body, right? And uh, you know they kind of had to go in, cut it out, and they were biopsying it and all that. And my grandmother was still living at that time, and and bless her heart, you know grandmothers say these type of things, right? But she just said, "Oh, I I I, I know it's going to be all right because Jeff's such a good person and he's doing right." I thought, I appreciate that, Grandma. <laughs> but that's stinky theology, right? You know, it really is. And now, it's all by His grace. It's all by His grace. I don't obligate God. I don't deserve something from God because of my performance. It's all by His grace grace self-righteousness suspicions at least at some level that I'm doing so well that I deserve this for some of us maybe because we're high performers we're achievers we like to check things off our list we like getting the A's and all those things that's going to be the end of the spectrum we struggle with for some of us the, the snare is, is about self-righteousness, and we come back and remind ourselves what Paul said. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. No purpose. If my performance somehow could have ever been good enough, Christ didn't have to come. Christ surely didn't have to die. My self-righteousness, my righteousness is never enough. On the other end of the spectrum is what we'll call persistent guilt. And my guess is this is where some of us are living even today. Persistent guilt kind of says, well, I think, yeah, I'm forgiven. But I don't know if God could really love me. I'm forgiven, but... I don't know if God could ever use somebody like me. Forgiven by his grace, but that thing from my past, that was a biggie. Persistent guilt sometimes looks like I keep thinking about that thing 
and how I need to pay for that thing. And I have been around long enough and struggled with it in my own life and walked alongside a whole lot of other people to know that persistent guilt is prevalent in the body of Christ. And there are some of you here today that this is the snare that is entangling you. And it is diminishing your appreciation of and your appropriation of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Here's what I know. You can't live with much joy if you're carrying around persistent guilt. You're not going to be free to be fully the person that God has called and created you to be if you continue to wrestle with persistent guilt. You're not going to be very active in sharing Christ with other people if you are wrestling continually with persistent guilt. No wonder the enemy likes to accuse you. No wonder the enemy likes to have you tangled up in persistent guilt. There is a difference between recognizing our sin, which is healthy, and being entangled with persistent guilt, which is a curse. Paul never forgot his sin, but he didn't let it control his life. First Timothy, he's writing, here's my story, Paul said, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul understood the depth of his sin. He didn't ignore it. He didn't forget about it. He didn't try to brush it under a rug like it didn't happen. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an opponent. I did all of these things in in, in self-righteousness, but God's love and God's grace overflowed for me. I am the chief among sinners. But I have been rescued by His grace. And God can use even somebody like me. Paul never forgot his sin, but he always took it to the cross. He always took it to the cross. Don't forget your sin. But every time it raises its old ugly head, take it to the cross. Take it to the cross. Another example is John Newton. Perhaps you know the name John Newton, most connected with his writing of the lyrics to Amazing Grace. John Newton was a former slave trader, and he never forgot the depravity of that practice. But instead of wallowing in his guilt, He took it to the cross. And I think maybe that's in part why those words are so powerful and so strong even today. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. To the very end, Newton remembered both his sin and the gospel. 
on his deathbed at age 82, he said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Listen, that's what it means to live fully, understanding Christ alone. I am a great sinner. And Christ Jesus is a greater Savior. That's why we are here. That's why this church is here. We, we share a message, a message of hope, a message of transformation, a message of freedom, a message that, that life and forgiveness and restoration is found in Christ and Christ alone. And I know that's not politically correct, but it is eternally true. And it is the message that we are going to continue to focus on by his empowering grace as long as he gives us breath. That it is through Christ and Christ alone. It's not about my performance. On my best day, I still need his grace. On my worst day, I'm never beyond the reach of his grace. But it is what Jesus Christ has done for me. And so I'm going to tell you this morning, our prayer throughout this series has been that God would break through. That God would break through some hearts and minds and lives and, and, and would not leave you with just a religiosity. Would not leave you that you would be entangled in self-righteousness or persistent guilt, but that you would experience the joy, the freedom, the power, and the forgiveness, the amazing benefits of renouncing any reliance on your own performance and relying totally on the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ. I am a great, great sinner, and he is a great, great Savior. Would you bow your heads as we pray to him, please? Oh, Father, we just are overwhelmed by your grace and Lord, I just pray right now that you would, in grace, touch hearts, touch lives. Lord, that today would be a day of eternal transaction. Today would be a day when, when there are some in this room right here, right now, that they're going to walk out of this room different than when they walked in. That today, Father, is the day for them personally to renounce self-reliance and to rely totally on the perfect life and death of Jesus Christ as the sole basis for their acceptance before a holy God. Lord, let today be the day of their salvation. Lord, I just pray for today knowing that there may be some here that are, that are caught up in a snare of self-righteousness, others who are entangled with the snare of persistent guilt. And I, I pray, Father, that they would come back, come back to the, the truth of your gospel, come back to the, the message of the cross, come back to realize that it is Christ and Christ alone and experience the, the freedom that comes from moment by moment, day by day, looking and relying upon you. Lord, let today be the day that you set some of your sons and daughters free. 
And I'm just going to ask you just to be still in Christ's presence for just a moment or two more, if you would. As you're in these moments...